Uh, but we are going to finish off our sermon series, our, our prayer series today. Uh, if you looked in the bulletin, today is the prayer of self-examination. And some of you are going, oh boy, what am I in for today? But I'll tell you this, this, this idea of self-evaluation, self-examination, is probably one of the most underutilized prayers in the Christian walk. Which is kind of ironic because we we live in a culture that's kind of obsessed with self. We're very self-focused, but self-examination is one where you kind of lay yourself bare before God and you're really inviting him in to really search you and to know you and to test you. And there is no more powerful and productive prayer in the Christian life than self-examination. It will bring you to a place of spiritual growth and spiritual awareness that you've never been before. And the verses we're going to read today is going to be part just to study these verses, but also a character study of the man who wrote these verses and what happened in his life and how self-examination could have kept him from a series of really difficult and bad choices that altered his life in in many significant ways. Self-examination is a gift from God. And it's fueled by his grace that we can know ourselves, not just through our own lens, but through his lens and his standards. And there's a sense in the Christian life when you humble yourself before God that you realize you're not perfect and you need help. You know, I told my wife Mandy the other day that she ought to just embrace her mistakes. (laughs) And so she gave me the biggest hug. I've ever had. It took a bit, but you got there. But this reality is, is none of us are perfect, especially when we view ourselves before God. And the prayer of self-examination is one that if you do this, if you're committed to it and you're disciplined in self-examination, your life will be changed. And you'll unlock a sense of joy and a sense of freedom that you will find nowhere else and no way else. The prayer of self-examination. When I planned this series months ago, I knew this is the one we needed to end on. And so I'm going to pray for us now before we read the text today in Psalm 139, that God would really speak to you in this moment, and that this would be something that you understand the need of, and again, the joy and the freedom that comes from that. So pray with me before we read our verses today. So God, I I pray uh, now in this moment as we've understood that prayer comes in many different ways and many different fashions, that there's a a power in this beyond just asking you for things and and hoping we get what we want, God, that that there's so much more that we can really understand your will in our life, that we can be uh, molded and and bended towards you. And and God, I pray for those, for all of us, really, all of us who, who struggle with pride in some sense and struggle with sin in our lives that it often goes unnoticed and there's no care for it for long periods of time. God, may you just break us now in this moment. May we be humbled before you and just come as beggars asking for bread, saying we need your help, that we have problems in our lives and we trust in you as the solution of all things, that we truly know ourselves in the way that you know us, the depths of our hearts and and the thoughts of our mind. And may we just lay bare before you in our lives and and truly understand, God, who you desire us to be, who we really are and who you desire us to be. 
and that we'd come with this, ref- this, this founded trust in you and all that you do. So in this time, as we read these two somewhat quick and simple yet very profound verses, may you speak to us now, wherever we're at, with your Holy Spirit, that we come to a place of needing to, to examine ourselves before you regularly. So I commit this time to you. God, may you use my words uh, as your words. And, and God, may you speak to us now through your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to read these two verses together, Psalm 139. And I'm going to take a little bit of time to really provide some context of kind of where David is and, and, and why he might be writing this and why it's important for all of us today as well. But these are the two verses we're going to be looking at a little more closely, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And David writes this as a prayer. He says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. There's kind of four parts in that that we're going to break down. But, but first, if, if you are not sure who this David guy is or maybe you need a refresher, uh, King David was really the, the greatest king that had ever lived. Uh, earthly king. And, and David was a, a guy that for every you know, intent and purpose was, was a man after God's own heart. He was a good and a godly man. He was gracious. He was skilled. He was courageous. But he made some pretty big mistakes in his life. And if you know the story here, you know exactly where I'm going. And it's detailed very clearly in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. He made some really big mistakes with some really big repercussions. And before we go into what that was, first of all, we we get this idea that when we read about people in the Bible, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, you, you build up this perception that they were perfect people. If you're a godly person, you're a perfect person. And what we know in this case especially, in every other case, is that's just not true that they made a lot of mistakes. Godly people make mistakes. But what makes them godly is that they are aware of their mistakes. They admit them before God, and they seek forgiveness in him. So for David, it kind of started in this unassuming way. He's the king of Israel. He's victorious in pretty much everything he does. And and he's taking a mid-afternoon nap as they're engaged in this far-off battle. He comes out of his palace, and he's on his roof. And then he sees a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, he didn't design this. He didn't want this. It just kind of happened. And he allowed that to kind of turn into a desire in his heart. He lusted after this woman. And then he kind of ruminated it in his brain. He couldn't stop thinking about her. So he sent his palace guard to go find out who she was. He comes back and says, this is Bathsheba, who's married to Uriah, who's off in battle right now. Now, if David had taken his thoughts captive, he said, all right, I got to put an end to this, right? I know that this is wrong, but he didn't. And so he sent for her to come to the palace. He had an adulterous affair with her, and then sent her back home. What wasn't over there? She was pregnant. Now, there's a child that was conceived in her out of wedlock, and so she sent the uh, message back to David, and, and he said, this is not good. So we're going to get her husband to come back from battle and kind of trick him into a situation where he can go home and make it look like the baby is his. And none of that worked because Uriah was this really noble guy and said, all of my brothers are out in the battlefield. 
I'm not going to go home and sleep in my own bed while they're out there. And so he sent them back into battle to cover up the pregnancy then. He decided to kill Uriah and send him to the front lines. And he, he now, and this was very intentional, this was for the purpose of murdering Uriah and covering up this whole thing so he could take Bathsheba as his own wife. And to cover up that, he devises this plan where the messenger is supposed to kind of shock him and surprise him with this news. And then David throws the war general under the bus and said, this is his fault. He shouldn't have been battling so close to the wall. So it's just this snowball effect. It starts with something kind of innocent that any reasonable godly person should know is wrong. And he lives in this and he keeps multiplying it to the point now he's guilty of adultery and lies and murder. And this child that's born out of uh, wedlock, and now he's lying even to Bathsheba about the condition of her husband's death, and he takes her as his wife. And he thought he got away with it. And then months had gone by, almost a year had gone by, and he's thinking he's scot-free in all this, but there's one big problem. God saw everything. And he knew what had happened. He knew the depths of David's heart. He knew all of the mistakes he made. And after the baby was born, God said, I do not approve of any of this. And so he is confronted by the prophet Nathan. And then and Nathan comes and he shares this story that God gave about this rich man who had everything he could ever imagine, goes and steals the one and only lamb of this poor man and takes it as his own. And David, with no self-awareness, no self-examination, says, that's an awful thing to do. That man should be put to death for what he did. And this is where it got real. Nathan says, David, you are that man. God saw everything you did. He's fully aware of it, and you thought that that you could get away with all this. God saw it. And David came to this instant point of repentance and he's weeping over what happened, and he begged to God for forgiveness after he was humbled in this moment. And the, the great part about the story is that God forgave him for all of this, that there's freedom and there's joy in that salvation repentance. But there are some serious consequences that followed. David's house would be divided after that point where there's always people fighting against each other. The, the kingdom was aware that something had happened here, and there's this public humiliation And he lost his son that he conceived with Bathsheba. I look at this and understand that this is what he's writing now. And this presumably is maybe a year or two or three after this instance. And he knows the the need for self-examination. But how did he get to where he was? A good and godly man, how did that much stuff happen in his life? And I think the answer is pretty simple. Pride. He was blinded by his own pride, and he, he thought that he was more important than anyone else, and he'd get whatever he wants, that, that his standards were higher than God's standards. And he really thought that he was the most important person in this situation and didn't care about all the pain and the carnage that was spread around him in this situation. Pride blinded him. And the big lesson I take away from this is that if we don't humble ourselves before God in something like self-examination, we will be humbled by God. 
Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, as the promise were given in Scripture. Pride kills Christians. And there's great atrocities that happen in your life and other if, if you don't take that time of humility before God. Prayer is the great pride killer. By nature itself, prayer humbles us before God. And so if pride kills the Christian, the Christian must kill the pride. And the best way to do that is through what we see here in self-examination. When we look at Psalm 139 as a whole, you get this quick progression, we'll go through this in 30 seconds or less, that God knows us, right? He knows us better than anyone. God knows us better than ourselves. And not just that, but God is always with you. You can't outrun God. God will be with you in every situation in life. God knows you so much that he knew you even before you were born. He knit you together in the womb. He knows all of the struggles around you. And David is talking about the evil and this, this hardship around him. But most importantly, as we, as we just read, God is aware of the struggles within you. And this is where we see David matured in his faith. He isn't just going to blame everyone else for all the hardships in his life. But he says, God, what am I at fault in here? And how can I examine myself? And he gives us this four-step prayer. And the first is this. You ask God to examine your heart. Now, the heart here means really your deepest desires, the truest person of who you are, what kind of motivates you and, and drives you, all of your emotions, every part of, 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 of you is your heart. And you ask God, search me and know my heart. Now, this psalm starts with the idea that God's already searched us, and he already knows us. And, and this prayer really is, is just us kind of going on a joint venture with God, that, that we want to know ourselves as God knows us. So we invite him to search us and, and, and be the examiner and the investigator of every part of our lives. Now, we can search our own hearts without God. And what that leads to is a thousand excuses and justifications of who you are. And many people evaluate themselves without the standards of God. And we see it happen thousands of years ago as well, that in the book of Isaiah, that people call what is evil good and what is good evil. In the book of Judges, that people do what is right in their own eyes. In today's culture, the same thing is happening, that if you examine yourself without God and without his standards... The only conclusion you come to is it's all good. Everything's fine. And that was the fault of David, is that he knew what he was doing is wrong. But he justified everything he was doing. He came up with the excuses. It is for our sake and not for God's sake that we ask him to examine our heart. Because we want to see ourselves like God sees us. And we want to desire an accurate report. It's a question you ask that you probably don't want to know the answer to. Because you're going to get a tough answer. I remember when I was in college, I would sometimes be very prepared for tests and papers, and sometimes I would be not so prepared for them. And I knew that, so I'd, I'd get these tests back, and, and we had little mailboxes, you'd get them in, and then open it up, and it'd be folded so I couldn't see the score. And my reaction usually was, I don't want to see it. I know it's going to be bad. And so I put it upside down on my desk in my dorm sometimes for days. 
But it's like, this is ridiculous. Eventually, I'm going to know what this is. And sometimes it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Sometimes it was worse than I thought it was. But we might do that, too, right? With the, the, the hospital visit you had, you know the bill is going to be huge. So you just don't open up the envelope. You don't want to know the truth. Maybe you had a really good Christmas break a few months ago, and you just don't want to step on the scale after that. We have a hard time accepting truth, but this prayer is, God, search me and know me, and I want to know the full report. I want to know me like you know me. And he might reveal parts of your heart that you don't even know about. But we don't stop there. It's not just what you desire that we want God to search. It's it's what you think. It's your attitudes. It's your perspectives. We ask God to really evaluate every part of your mind where David says, test me and know my anxious thoughts. And here we get to unlock kind of a natural progression of how things work uh, in in the Christian life, and it's particularly in the realm of sin, is that it might start with a temptation, and temptation is not a sin. David was tempted by Bathsheba and what he saw. That wasn't the sin. He didn't ask for that. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are. We're often tempted by things, and that itself is not a a sin. But when you let it kind of live in your heart, and you begin to desire it, and you love this temptation, and you want this temptation, it grows from there into your thought life. You start thinking about it over and over again. You you develop an attitude where you think you you want it or deserve it. You, you you, you, You develop a game plan of how you're going to do this. And then finally, the last result of that is the committal of the sin itself. But James kind of explains this well, that that every sin starts with a desire, and the desire grows into a thought life, and thought life into an action. This is kind of the middle part of that, where it's like, God, what am I thinking about? Evaluate my mind. What's my attitude in this situation? And the word that's used here for test is also uh, translated as try, which, means, is, which is the word used for trials. Like, it's a painful procedure to kind of test your mind. Just like when you go in for a medical test, sometimes you have to be poked and prodded often. You need to fast and cleanse your system out, or you have to sit in a loud and, and tight machine for hours at a time. When we ask God to test our mind, it means that he might, like a sponge, if you want to get the water out of it, you're going to have to wring it. That's what we're asking him for, is to really put us through the test and the trials we need to discover what we're really thinking about, what our attitudes really are in the moment. The reality is God cares about your mind and your thought life. Your attitude and your perspective are just important as your actions as a Christian, potentially more important and God wants to know what's filling your brain. And here's an easy test from Philippians 4.8. I encourage you to memorize this one. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. What's filling your mind? Right? And these are the things you ask to God. Is, is what I'm thinking about over and over, is it even true? Do I know if it's true? And if it's true, is it noble? Meaning, like, is it worthy of my attention? Is it right? Is it correct for me to be thinking about this this much? Is it pure? Do I have the right intentions of thinking about it? Is it filled with love? 
Is it admirable? If all the things I had in my head, I said out loud, would people applaud me and say, that's really well said? Or would they look down at me for saying it? If you shouldn't say it out loud, you shouldn't be thinking it either. But the things that are excellent, the things that are praiseworthy and that magnify God and glorify him, think about those things. God's concerned about your thought life. And so ask God to test you and evaluate your mind and bring all of these things to God and empty yourself out before him. And he'll speak to you. And step three here is really the hardest part about all of this. That you ask God to really reveal the sin in your life where David writes, see if there's any offensive way in me. And offensive here doesn't mean just making someone else feel bad. Offensive means wicked or evil. See if there's any way in you that is offensive to God. You're asking him to reveal the sin in your life. Many of us don't want to know this. And this is the part we wish we could skip. But if you're not interested in step three, don't start with step one. This is the whole point, is that if we let sin live in our life and we don't want to address it, then we go down the path of David. There's huge consequences for what happens. Don't pretend that there's no sin in your life. And this is where it's really hard. Oftentimes, when you grow spiritually, you just think, I'm going to see how bad everyone else is doing around me and focus on the sins and the faults in their life. But in any situation, in any conflict, in any challenge in life, there is shared fault of every person involved because every person has sin and fault in their life. Anyone who claims they are without sin, 1 John says, is lying to themselves. And the truth of God is not in them. Everybody sinned. You need to have this moment before God. God, please reveal in me the things I'm not seeing in myself. And take a lesson from David. There's a joy and a repentance and and forgiveness that we have that's found nowhere else. And, And what this leads us to is the most important part, is not just wallowing in your own sin and feeling bad for yourself and shameful, because there's there's two extremes concerning sin in the Christian life, and both of them are designed by Satan himself. And one is the, the way of pride, which is just ignoring it or pretending it's not there. And the second is to have this magnified focus on the sin and just living this perpetual shame and guilt and, and where you're at. And in both of these, take your eyes off of the true beauty of all of this, which is that you come to forgiveness. And you can ask God to lead you forward and lead you out of whatever you're doing. And this is this, this true heart of the prayers. Lead me not in the offensive ways and the ways that are wrong, but take me out of that. And lead me forward in your way, God, the way of the everlasting. And this is the true heart of self-examination. Not to walk in independence or walk in your own ways, but to walk in full submission to God. And this clear understanding that we need God in his way and in every part of our life. We need him in every moment. And this desperate plea is present here at the end of self-examination by David. Not my way, God. I tried that once. Not my way, but yours. This is the only way that endures. It's the only way that lasts. Gone are the days of of listening to no one but myself. And I'm sorry for that, God, but direct me. Teach me. Lead me. Show me your path. And lead me forward. 
You can know God, His Word, and examine yourself before Him. And when you find out that there's an offensive way and you bring that to God and you experience the forgiveness that only He can. This is one of the most difficult prayers in the Christian life. But it's one of the most productive and powerful prayers as well. And this is a discipline. To self-examine yourself, it's something you don't just do naturally. It's, it's scary, but it's going to lead you forward and towards growth. And so the first idea I would have for you, if you're looking to apply this in your life, memorize the two verses we just read. And pray it in these four steps. And, and empty your heart and your mind before God and just lay yourself bare. And ask God to speak to you in those moments. He, he will. And there might be sin in your life that you didn't even realize that you can now ask God for forgiveness for. And in that repentance, you'll experience that joy and move forward. Maybe for some of you, journaling might be a good thing. Now, this is those who process verbally, journaling might be really helpful for you. Those who don't, journal, journaling probably won't be something that's going to uh, help you in this. But for those of you who do verbal process, write these things down and sort through it with God. Maybe uh, just take a time at the end of every day. And, and one uh, commentator I wrote said that he would go in his driveway and just shoot basketballs at the end of every day, like 10 o'clock. And he'd kind of do a spiritual inventory of the day as he's doing this. And he'd clear his mind and says, is there something I did today that I shouldn't have done? Is there something I, I should have done that I, that I failed to do? How was I obedient in everything today? And he'd have these moments where he'd really examine himself before God every single day. And he said it changed his life in a way he never thought possible. Sometimes it's just unplugging from things and, and, and being dedicated to the moments, having these silent and alone times before God, which is a rarity today. But give healthy margin in your day and in your life to be committed to something like self-examination. Because no matter how you do it, or where you do it. You need to do it. And when you do, God will honor and multiply this time and grow you in a way you never thought you could be grown. Know yourself, but more importantly, seek to know yourself as God knows you. Let's close in prayer. So God, we thank you for this, uh, these brief but very challenging uh, verses that you've given us. And it's, it's something, God, we, we are so thankful for that we don't have to navigate life by ourselves, but that we can trust in you and trust in you fully uh, for everything. And God, I pray for anyone that's, that's navigating sin either in a sense of pride or a sense of shame. They're just two sides of the same coin of the devil. God, that there is forgiveness in you, that we can repent from what we know is wrong that you revealed to us that we can move forward in freedom of that sin, and God, that we can live in the joy and the peace and the hope and the love that only you can give. So God, I pray for that, that all of us, wherever we're at, we would make this a discipline of our lives and, and know the true power of this prayer of self-examination. And God, I just pray that all of it would not be for our glory, but for your glory, that we can be more into the men and the women, the, the children that you created us to be in your name and in your power. So we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.